Hi everybody, Michael Davis here. Welcome to Bone to Pick and I am very excited to have the opportunity to sit down with our Artist of the Month for August, the great Steven Bernstein. Uh, one of the most creative musicians I have ever had the pleasure of working with and uh, I'm a fan of his music and his playing. Uh, I ran across a sentence that I think describes him the best in doing some research for this interview. Uh, a trumpeter, a slide trumpeter, a band leader, a ranger, and composer who lives outside of musical convention. And I think that's a really good way to describe Stephen in, in the most positive light. Uh, he has released four critically acclaimed CDs as a solo artist. Uh, in 1995, he founded his band Sex Mob, which has gone on to uh, garner a Grammy nomination. Uh, they've toured around the world many times. They have received numerous awards. Uh, their music has been featured on MTV, Saturday Night Live, and NPR. His nine-piece ensemble, Millennial Territory Orchestra, has also released two acclaimed CDs. Three. Three. <laughs> oh, I get uh, getting behind okay. already. I'm already okay. behind. <laughs> His current project, uh, The Butler Bernstein and the Hot Nine, with the uh, incredible uh, New Orleans pianist Henry Butler. Uh, he has been the musical director and arranger for a myriad of artists, including Levon Helm, Leonard Cohen, Bill Frizzell, Lou Reed, Rufus Wainwright, Marion Faithful, Elton John. He has played with a, a diverse group of artists, to say the least, including Radiohead, U2, Sting, Medeski Martin and Wood, the great composer Ryuichi Sakamoto, Don Byron, David Murray, My Morning Jacket. He is a multiple winner of downbeat critics polls as an arranger and trumpet player. Absolutely thrilled to have him here today. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for taking time out of your nice. very busy schedule. <laughs> Great to be here. You were, uh, he was getting back to people as he's walking in the door. I got to answer all these before we get started. So, so we really appreciate you uh, being here. Thanks. Um, let's jump in when you just started the early years. I know uh, being a California boy myself, uh, I, I know how fruitful the Berkeley uh, scene was, especially for young players in that amazing high school program that maybe you could talk about. Your, your early years playing and what you know kind of got you uh, got you going on music. Well, I was really lucky in that um, my family was kind of toggling between the East Coast and the West Coast. My folks were East Coast people. We ended up in the Bay Area. Went back to Boston for fourth grade. So I started trumpet in fourth grade. Fifth grade came back to Berkeley, and it started jazz program for elementary school kids. Uh, Phil Hardiman, Dick Whittington, and Dr. Herb Wong. Uh, Dr. Herb Wong might be the best known name. Mm -hmm. he, it was his idea. Phil Hardiman wrote most of the charts. Dick Whittington was a piano player and helped co-lead this. And so in fifth grade, I get to a new school, and there's a jazz band. And um, there's charts that are written for that age student, fifth, sixth grade. And um, we didn't have a bass player. We The organ would play left-hand bass. And we started improvising using... Basically, what he would call the five notes, like basically a blues scale, and a lot of ear training back and forth, just use just using the the root, the dominant seven, and the fifth. You know, he, the, Mr. Harmon would play on the trumpet, ba 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 ba. We would do like little tunes like that, and uh, yeah. So I started. That was how I started playing. It was very natural to play that way, which was a blessing and a curse. Because instead of learning harmony, you're so young. I mean, you just start playing, and you get this very natural way to play music. And there was a guy named Peter Applebaum who went to a different school, was a year older than me. And, you know, genius is a funny word, but Peter just had 
you can call it genius, you can call it an incredible gift, but he, as, as a young kid, could play like an adult mm -hmm. on multiple instruments, mm -hmm. drums, piano, saxophones, eventually trumpet. He could play like two choruses, like Fast Navarro, in the key of <laughs> in blues and concert G. Um, he's, he was really into music. He said, you want to be in my band? I said, yeah. So he says, okay, check out these records. Now I'm in sixth grade. He gives me Freddie Hubbard's Straight Life, Horse Silver Blowing the Blues Away, Lee Morgan the Sidewinder, and MF Horn 2. He's like, learn, learn this stuff right. in sixth grade. I like that he threw Maynard in there just for good measure. It's right? like, boy, all right, okay. Um, so yeah, I, I, I got a really, I was lucky to get exposed to music really early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I know growing up in the Bay Area myself, Peter was a legend. You know? Absolutely. I mean, he was a star. You yeah. know, it was quite amazing. And and then in high school, you went to Berkeley High School? Went to Berkeley High. Which and also had one of the great yeah. jazz programs anywhere right. in the country. Well, what happened was Mr. Hardiman just came with us. So when, when we moved to seventh grade, he started teaching junior high. Mm. And then when we moved to high school, he started teaching high school. So we were with him the whole time. And, you know, I always feel the thing about music is... You have to hear good music to play good music. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people aren't exposed. And then we were going to gigs. We had Keystone Corner. So I think the first gig I went to was Eddie Harris. Second gig I went to was Sam Rivers. Third gig I went to was Ross on Roland Kirk. Then, <laughs> then Art Blake and the Jazz Messengers. And this is, we're talking seventh, eighth grade. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. You know. So, and... Also, Peter, we got really into kind of the music of that period. So we started hearing, hearing the art ensemble. And I got I got to know Lester Bowie and Don Cherry. So I'm hearing like, I mean, I never met Freddie. He was pretty scary. But, you know, I met Lester <laughs> and I met Don. And I'd go see Freddie. I'd be like right in the front row and Eddie Henderson. And I'd come, you know, we'd be these little kids. So they kind of led us backstage, you know, as long as we didn't like touch anything. Mm -hmm. You know, so I saw some like I saw like amazing interactions. One time I remember I was backstage and it was Lester Bowie, F Freddie, and Don Cherry like hanging out, hanging out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it, it, yes, I do. <laughs> but it kind of broke down that idea of like styles. It's like, right? No, these are guys that they have the same job, you know, different specialities, but mm -hmm. they're, they're in the music business. You mm -hmm. know. So yeah, so I, I, I am you know. And the funny thing is, of course, as you remember from high school, we had competitions, jazz competitions. Sure. And you know, you win the competition, so you think, well, man, I got, I must be really good. Like I, you know, I got the Monterey Jazz Festival All Stars. We win this, we win that, and then I come to New York, and tr the truth hits. <laughs> <laughs> New York always the great equalizer. That is for sure, right? Uh, well, let's talk about that. You get to uh, you. You ended up uh, starting at Columbia, right? Yeah. And uh, what was that like for you? Going to an Ivy League school, coming out of uh, well, it, well, I was pretty smart. You know, I, I was good at. I knew how to write papers. I knew how to read well. Um, but here's a funny story. I already knew people in New York. I gotta say, I had amazing teachers too. I haven't even said like in the Bay Area, a guy named Warren Gale. Mm -hmm. I think I need to give credit to these guys. Warren, and this must have been eighth grade. Warren had written out, um, if people don't know who he is, Warren is a great trumpet player who, uh, really like a kind of Woody Shaw, same age group, you know, mm -hmm. him and Woody and Oscar were, Bashir were using a lot of the same, like, post-Coltrane vocabulary, and Warren had written out every piece that uh, Kenny Dorm had recorded, 
had, had written and recorded, Lee Morgan, Booker Little, um, probably somebody else along that line. And that's what we would play for our lessons in like mm -hmm. eighth grade. And I, but, I had, but the funny thing, Mike, is like, I have no idea like what's going on harmonically, but I can play the melodies. Right. So like on one level, I can play this music. On another level, I have like really no idea what's going on, you know? <laughs> and I still don't. <laughs> well, I still maintain it. So if, if, if you can hear it, whether you can explain it or not, right. it's really about hearing it. Right. You know? And then I had John Coppola. Now, I don't know if you ever sure, met John. Yeah. And so John, and John was a guy who kind of, I love to tell this story. I'll tell the story real quick. I had an attitude. <laughs> Duh. I walk into John's. Everyone said, man, if you're serious, you got to stay with John because he's an old man. John, he wasn't old. He was my age. But uh, he had played, you know, with Woody and Stan Kenton and Billy May and that whole world. Right. So I walk in. And I go like, hey, man, you know, I've heard about you. Everyone says I need to be here for lessons. But I just want to tell you, like, I'm really into the new music. You know, I love Lester Bowie. That's my man. And John goes, oh, okay. And he puts on this Rex Stewart record from like 1942 where like everything Lester ever basically ever played, like Rex is playing over this stuff. And my, my, my mouth drops open. He goes, he goes, yeah. He goes, Les is a good trumpet player. He goes, people have been doing that for a while. He goes, let's focus on uh, learning to play the instrument, okay? <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I had a great, like, no bullshit teacher just like, right. you know, sticking it to me like, man, like, okay, you love music, but you got to learn to use your air. you got to right, learn to right. play this thing. So I get to town. I get to New York. I knew people. A guy named Stan Schaffer says to me, uh, did you ever meet Stan? I didn't, I don't he think passed I away about yeah. 15 to 20 years ago. He says to me, he had lived, uh, when Colon Studios had both buildings, Right. he lived on the building across the street they owned. Okay. He says, man, there's a rehearsal I can't make, rehearsal band, Paul Jeffrey. So why don't you go there? In town three days. Now, I, you know, the thing is, by a 10th or 11th grade, I could read a second trumpet book in a big band. I knew how to do that, how to, you know, you know, I've been taught, it's like a skill, and I've mm -hmm. learned it. Walk in there, it was uh, Steve Glue's band, Lori Frank, maybe one other person, and another young guy, obviously a high school kid, you could just tell by the way he's dressed, he just mm -hmm. got into town, you know, big afro, glasses, t-shirt, jeans, like your high school sneakers. Hey man, what's your name? Oh, Steven, what's your name? Oh, Wynton, oh, nice to meet you, man. So, your first tune he plays, <laughs> <laughs> they do moments notice, man, he just plays like, like, you know, just... Just incredible silver moments. I'm like, whoa, man, guys are good in this town, huh? <laughs> then he plays lead on a ballad, just like, you know, incredible. Then finally a blues, they feature the trumpet. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get to do my thing now. Play my little West Coast solo, jazzy, you know. Everyone else, Winton's the last guy. He plays two courses of 16th note, circular breathing. <laughs> now that's my introduction to New York City. <laughs> and I go like, wow, I guess I picked the wrong profession. <laughs> I got over it about 25 years later. Yeah. <laughs> Stroke of luck in, in both directions, right? Like right. you're running, running across the guy who's one of the great trumpet players in the history of the instrument right. on your third day in New York. Yeah. You know. And had no idea like that. Like everyone doesn't play like that. I'm just like, oh, I guess this is how good people are here when they're 18 years old. You know. uh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, that's, so I went to Columbia and, you know, to be honest, after that I was kind of like a little bit like, well, maybe I'm not going to be a trumpeter, you know. Really, yeah. I thought. So I just kind of went to school and hung out, and I was still practicing, and but not, you know, it was and it was nice to take a little break because I'd been very serious in high school. Like 
I was the kind of guy that just spent the weekends transcribing and practicing and playing gigs. And so it was nice just to be like a regular like college guy, you mm -hmm. know? It was fun. And at a certain point, I said, you know what? I do want to do this. I left school, and I met, and that summer, my second summer, I had, um, you know who Butch Morris was? Uh, con yeah, Butch yeah. was a cornet player and, right. and was very known for conduction. At the time, he, he was a really great cornet player in the style coming out of Don Cherry. And he had lived in the Bay Area. And I knew him, and I'd seen him play with a band called Sahib Sarbib's band, uh, international, I think it was called Multi International Big Band. It was kind of like the music that Peter Applebaum had been writing for the hieroglyphics, like big band music, but the forms were modal, like mm -hmm. modal big band music. Hmm. And I told Butch, I said, "Man, I can play this music. This I know how. This this is kind of what I want to do." And he says to me, "Well, you know, they got a record date, and uh, I haven't been playing the horn much. I've been writing. Why don't you just show up?" He doesn't tell him. That I'm so, he doesn't tell him he's sending a sub. So I show up. And like basically, it's the whole like down what later became known as the downtown scene is in this big band, all East Village guys, and different avant-garde musicians. And I walk in, you know, and it was good because I had a good set of skills for it. Like I knew how that music worked, but I could read. You know, I could play in a. It wasn't a typical kind of section, mm -hmm. but it was still section playing. And I meet a bunch of guys, and they're all like. Oh man, come up, come on Sunday. We have a little gig at the Ear Inn, a band called the Microscopic Septet. I go there. John Zorn's playing saxophone at that time. Elliot Sharp's hanging out. Wayne Horvitz is hanging out. Bobby Previtt's hanging out. It's that whole, what became known as the downtown scene. And I meet all these guys. And I, there wasn't really a trumpet player on that scene that kind of had a little skill set I had, which is I knew how the music worked, I could read, I could hang. And I just started working with those guys. So that's what I did, man. Mm, and, you know, nice. And that was kind of like at 19 or I guess I was 19 years old, I met that group of musicians. Very cool. And, and you, you've referenced the downtown scene. How, how would you define that for those? You know, we have a lot of folks who yeah. are orchestral players, but, you know, it's such a famous, you know, thing, an entity. But the, you, you just touched on the beginnings of it. What, how did that evolve and, and, uh, and how would you describe the well, downtown scene? It, it, it was called the downtown scene because a lot of people lived in the East Village. And what it was was a bunch of really people like a little older than me, you know, maybe 10 years older than me who had been moved there in the 70s. And they were, came, they were listening to a lot of the music of that time. So they were listening to the art ensemble and they were listening to Cecil Taylor and that, that era of music. But they also were, a lot of them were like young white people like me who grew up with rock music. Mm. So they were trying to figure out, like, create a new kind of music, not trying to create, just making a music where, you know, you might be referencing uh, blues or the Almond Brothers, the Grateful Dead, or the Beatles, as well as, you know, referencing the art ensemble and referencing Count Basie and referencing Louis Armstrong, and then certain people were very much into contemporary classical music, so there'd be references to Stockhausen and... Zanakis and that mm. kind of music. So it was really a melting pot kind of music. And because it was off of the grid, it was ripe for experimentation because no one was saying you can or can't do this. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not playing regular jazz clubs, you're not playing festivals. I, mean, I only played, I played basically rock clubs and what we called downtown clubs for the first 10 years of my life. I was 
really off the grid in a sense, mm -hmm. but working, mm -hmm. you know, and, and people were writing music. And of course, a lot of these people went on to become quite famous, mm -hmm. you know. Wow, that's a really good, good uh, description of it. It helps kind of give a, a sense of what, uh, how it evolved and what it was like. As the downtown scene then evolved, your career also flourished tremendously. I think, um, at least from what I could see in, in, in the lineage of your of all the amazing things that you've done, seems like uh, John Lurie and the Lounge Lizards was a very important early gig. You know, yeah. not at the very beginning of your career, but but certainly early on. Maybe you could talk about your memories of working with him and the band. And, yeah, and what absolutely. That was like. Well, that was really that was like kind of the premier gig on that scene, and it was. I always like to say I'm a little bit into this idea of like visualizing things without sounding, without it's sounding too groovy about psycho it. Psycho-cybernetics, that's yeah. like, I'm totally into that. I and and, and I, you know, when I came to New York, and I started, you know, you have a lot of options here, as you know. I mean, um, I came here to be a trumpet player, but what does that mean, you know? And I heard Hal Wilner's music, and I heard John Lurie's music, and I noticed, I said, man, I really like the way these guys' music, you know, I like the way it sounds. I noticed they don't use trumpet players. I said, I'm going to play trumpet with those guys. Hmm. And the funny thing is I ended up playing trumpet with both of them. And John had heard, I had a band, Spanish Fly. It was a collective band with Marcus Rojas and Dave Tronzo. Mm -hmm. So it was trumpet, tuba, slide guitar. And it was kind of a, a real break. It was a, kind of a change into the direction for the downtown scene because we played more groove music than a lot of those bands played. And we were also, just the way we played, myself having played a lot of... Um, salsa gigs and funk gigs and Tronzo being a great blues player and Marcus having amazing time. I mean, we played a groove. It was a real groove. It mm -hmm. wasn't like playing at a groove. It was actually a groove. So um, a lot of rock musicians liked our band and a lot of the free people liked our band because we also played really free. And John had heard that band and Hal had heard that band. They both heard the band and John was putting together a new version of the Lounge Lizards and asked me, he said, John's got this great voice. If people don't know who John Lurie is, he's a he's a very interesting man. He's a saxophone player, composer, actor, and painter. Very successful in all mm -hmm. in all those. Very, one of the few people I've met in the arts who has had three disparate careers. He, now he doesn't play music anymore. He just makes art, paints. Incredible painter, you know, has showings all over the world. And the because of his acting, these movies he had done with Jim Jarmusch had become kind of cult classics. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about music is that audiences often come because there's a certain, there's a cult feeling. They want to see somebody on stage they know. That's why if you do a gig with someone who's a movie star or TV star, there's going to be people in the audience. So John, even though he had started the lounge lizards before the movies, was starting to get these big audiences. And his music was getting better and better. Like his composing was just kind of really opening up. And he was putting together a new band. And it was a real gig. I mean, it was like paid rehearsals. Uh, and the very first gig I played with him, in, in, uh, we did a few gigs in Knitting Factory to kind of warm the band up. We started a European tour. We played in Athens. I think there were five or 6,000 people there. Mm -hmm. Like the first gig. And this is instrumental music. This is not mm -hmm. vocal music. You know, and that's a lot of that's a lot of people to hear instrumental music, <laughs> indeed. Especially far out instrumental music. So I started working with John, and it was really, you know, now it's like kind of like, you know, now you're in this great circuit of like playing these great European festivals, getting to meet the promoters, getting you know playing. You know, I'd always worked. I mean, I'm one of those guys like 
whether it was like Haitian gigs, weddings, cumbia bands, whatever, you know. Right. Occasionally the jingle, we got the good call, you know, <laughs> thank you, jingle, <laughs> you know, but I've always worked, you know. But this was like, you know, a nice level of work. And then John started, um, he started calling me saying, um, hey, you know, I wrote some music, will you transcribe it for me? And I was, had a, because coming through big bands, you know, it's, writing music is very interesting. And coming through big bands, no matter what, if I'm writing for Lou Reed or if I'm writing for anybody, it's still big band music to me. Hmm. It all, like when I write out, people laugh because when I write out rock music, it looks like big band music. Like that's <laughs> how I came up. Yeah. So I have a good way to, it's very easy for me to hear music and, and see what it looks like. They all look like Neil Hefty charts. You know? <laughs> Can't go wrong with Neil Hefty right. charts. So that's perfect. But, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Because course, yeah. there's this there's this language we grew up with that makes it very easy to define what the rhythmic patterns are. You know, and and that's the thing that people who aren't trained scientifically with music, which is most rock musicians, is they don't have that science side of looking at it. And all those riffs are just Count Basie riffs, basically, anyway. Mm -hmm. So I started, um, and through Peter, I knew a lot about 6-8. You know, the whole thing, John was writing a lot of African music, African-inspired music, where there's a lot of six over four, so maybe, you know. So I knew how to write those patterns. So I started, you know, basically transcribing his music for him. And then that led to films and we did some you know really big the first film I did with him was Get Shorty which was a huge film big, yeah yeah so but I was always doing it with my friends so it was it was it was a very natural progression yeah that's yeah. very cool you know I think it's a really great point um for all of us to know like the big band is really like an important vehicle for your development as a musician and that's why you know you see high schools and like you were saying elementary schools and junior high schools and, and certainly high schools and colleges it is a very important ensemble for getting the tools and the skills that you're going to, and you're going to, like, obviously you've done that. You've carried it over to all these different mediums, but but, uh, but it is transferable, and it's really an important. Uh, yeah, and I, 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 I'm, um, it's interesting because in the old days, it was also a bit of a, you could work. Like, you know, I was working in high school. Like, I could go work, like I said, I could go work with grown-ups. I could just jump in there. I knew how to do that, and I think... That part of it doesn't really exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Like the mm -hmm. idea like, well, I'll take this big band skill and I'll be able to actually make money from this specific skill. Because, But I think you'll take all those things you learn and be able to transfer it to just about any work you do. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, totally agree. Well, let's talk about you taking those skills and, and forming your own groups then. Um, um, Sex Mob is a huge band. I mean, you guys had tremendous success with it. Talk about maybe some of the what it was like getting that started and what inspired you to do that and, and just some, okay. some of your favorite thoughts okay. about well, Sex Mob. Well, that's a funny story. Sex Mob is a band I've had for 20 years. Same four guys. Not, you know, except for the Stones. Well, Stones don't even have the original band anymore. <laughs> um, but, you know, we've had the same four guys for 20 years. We had a different bass player for the first couple months. Um, was, was Martin in the... Martin Wendell. Oh, no, no, Mar Martin's just in this one really good video. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I didn't see him there. I, thought, oh, I no. didn't realize he was in the band, but I guess no. it was just. No, he was, what happened was Tony couldn't do a gig, and it was a really big gig that paid well. I wanted to do it. I usually didn't really sub out the band. Okay. And they wanted me us to play a specific book of music. And one thing about Sex Mom is we don't 
really is a set list. We just have 20 years worth of music. So they wanted us at this festival, they wanted us to do the specific record. So I said, well, that's easy to teach because the guy just has to learn the record. But it's so funny because it's a, actually a really high quality German video that many people have seen. It's probably like the best quality video we have. So I was like, oh, I saw Martin playing with you. It's like, yeah, he played once. Like, <laughs> but it's Tony's a Tony shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> so here's a funny story. So I got my first slide trumpet. And we, we haven't even talked about the slide yeah, trumpet. Yeah, we got to get into the okay, well, slide trumpet. But we're going to sure. talk about the slide trumpet right now because it's sex model. Yeah. So in the early 70s, you could, or the mid 70s, Getson made a slide trumpet that was, I think, 75 or $50. Mm. And so a lot of trumpet players just bought them because they were so cheap. Mine I bought for $25. I was up in Woodstock <laughs> at Creative Music Studio in 77, driving to this guitar store, and on the walls, a slide trumpet. I said, man, how much is that? That goes $25. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so I had a slide trumpet. I had one this, and I brought it to New York with me. Didn't really play it that much. But when I started Spanish Fly, I would play it on a few songs. But I could only really play, like, I never practiced or anything. I could just kind of play little things I invented, you know. And I could, mm -hmm. basically in the key F, which is any trumpet player, trumpet, or you know, concert F, which means first position, a lot of first, second, third, you just, messing around and um we're playing one of our first probably our first european tour we're playing at a festival in austria dave douglas is there on his first tour as a leader and dave a lot of people i'm sure know dave is really like really the most kind of successful guy of our generation at like getting music out there sure really yeah. really smart really has brain works in a really special way and he looks at me after the gig and we're having a beer and he says Man, you should you should practice that thing. I was like, "You're right. I had never <laughs> thought about that. I just played it. You know, it was enough to do with practicing trumpet." So I said, "Okay, that's a good idea. I'm gonna start to practice it." So I started to practice it, and I had an idea. I said, "Man, what if I start a band and I only play slide trumpet? Like, what would happen?" So I had this idea, and there's some younger guys had come to town, bringing Kraus, Kenny Wallace, and talked to them, I liked the way they played. I said, you know, I want to put together a band um, where I just play slide trumpet. You guys in for the ride? They're like, yeah, let's do it. Um, I'd do a straight ahead gig with Tony. I'd never played a gig with a bass player that good. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd be honest, man, you know, the guy had already played with like, whatever, been with Dakota Staten for years, and Al Gray, and Stanley Turrentine. He played like a real jazz bass player. I yeah. mean, he just pulled the bass. And I was like, man, I really like your bass playing. And he said, oh, man, I really like your slide trumpet playing. Because, like I said, I can play it on a few songs. I said, really like my slide trumpet playing? Because <laughs> this guy's like, really, sounds great. And he said, yeah, I really like it. I said, well, I'm thinking of starting a band where I only play slide trumpet. Would you do it? He's like, yeah, man, here's my number. So I got, wow, this guy is like a really great jazz player. So I put, put together this band. I don't have a name or anything, but just an idea. The guys at the Knitting Factory say, uh, we're starting late night series. We play for, play from eleven to two. Give you a hundred bucks and beer. Like, well, good. I got this band. I'm trying to learn to play the slide trumpet. Perfect. I said, what's it called? I said, I, I don't know. How about Stephen Bernstein's Slide Trumpet Quartet? Michael Michael Dorff says that sounds like four slide trumpets. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Uh, we're just hanging out in the afternoon at the Ning Factory because we were all like friends. You know, we would hang. I said, well, how about Slide Mob? He goes, that's a good name. Okay. I said, okay, how about Sex Mob? 
He goes, oh, that's a great name. I said, you put that in the paper? He said, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Now, Lula, I know that 20 years later, I'm still dealing with this. Because I'm just like, this is a goof. Like, I'm just figuring, like, what's going to happen? So, I start this gig. And literally, the first couple months, I could barely make it through one set. Second set, I'd be just like spitting air, like, like nothing happening, you know. But it, it was a great way to learn to play the instrument, like mm, learning sure. on the job. I had written a bunch of music and, you know, and we're like, you know, kind of like whatever songs I'd written. And that, at that time was right when I was starting to get into movies. And one of the things I would do was I would buy a movie soundtrack. I've always learned about music by listening. To, I'm like a voracious listener and collector. And I mm -hmm. still am. I'm mm -hmm. like really into the history of, of music and how it all worked. And I just love, and because I love big bands, I love the sounds of, I love it what it sounds like when musicians are in a room playing together. Like I, if I see a, a record and it just says, you know, Ernie Royal, Frank Rehack, Jerome Richardson, da, 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 I'll buy it. If I see a record and it says Connie Candoli, uh, Frank Rosalino, Buddy Collette, I'll just buy it. Just like, wow, what those guys sound like reading music on that day, on that date? Because right, it could have been right. their third date of the day. Right, right. I love the sound of great musicians reading music. So I was buying just these records, and I was buying um, soundtrack records to kind of like, how do people put soundtracks together? Because if I listen to something, I know I can figure it out. And I was listening to this Bond record, and there was a great cue called Bond with Bongos. And it was just kind of a riff on the on like doom, 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 and then with bongos and something goes doom, doom, and so that suddenly comes out of nowhere, right? Right. So I, what I would do is like I was starting to like just bring tunes to the gig, so, and then people were coming to the gig because it was free. People liked to be at the club. It, it was one of the early clubs that had a tap. It was called the Tap Bar. So you know people were just it was the beginning of like tap beer era. It was 20 years ago. And uh, we start this tune, we're just grooving, and suddenly Kenny's like, and the whole bar just like goes, wow. And I'm still playing the slide trumpet, it's still out of tune and like crazy sounding. I go like, oh man, if I play something everybody knows, they're just gonna, and then I started thinking about it. Then I started bringing in tunes. I started bringing in ABBA and Nirvana and James Brown and Prince. And then suddenly I had this repertoire. And it's funny because people say it's a cover band. And I always, I covers to me means you play it exactly right. like the record, like right. a top 40 band. I mean, in a sense, you could say Louis Armstrong was a cover band. I mean, how many tunes did Louis Armstrong write? How many tunes did Count Basie write? I chose Billy Holiday, right? She wasn't a cover band. Right, right. I just take songs that I feel have a great melody and do them in my style. And it, you know, and it was a, and the great thing is, of course, I play an instrument that I own this instrument. Like there's no, when you play, like, you know, from playing trombone, I mean, when you play the trumpet, you can't get away from, how do you get away from Miles and Clifford and Louis Armstrong, it's just it's just there. But when you play the slide trumpet, right. it's like it's just me. So it's it's a and in a sense that's really what jazz is. It's like, what's your voice? And it's sure a lot easier to find a voice when you're the only person playing an instrument. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to say, I think uh, for the for somebody who would refer to Sex Mob as a, a cover band, I think once you 
bring the uh, slide trumpet into the equation. You can get rid of the cover band <laughs> exactly. element. Exactly. We're taking it to a whole different place. Yeah. Well, one the thing I like love about the band too, it's like it's so groove based. Right. You know, I mean, it's very it's it's accessible, but yet eclectic, and it has all these these qualities that you've you know amassed all these very cool elements and and. Uh, and you know, it's to me, it's I can see why the band has developed the popularity that it has because it's it's. I mean, it seems to me it's kind of rooted in groove-based, you know, music. You see, know? that's that's the interesting thing when you're being a, a musician and a composer and a producer. You hear that a lot of people, they just take that for granted. They don't realize like my whole thing is everything comes from drums, and what we developed. I, I kind of taught Kenny and Tony how to play with me. Because they play with other bands, but there were very specific things I wanted to do, and there were beats I showed Tone Kenny, like here's how I want this beat. You know, we'd work on beats and say this, and I had name, and I would just call out the beat. I'd say, all right, San Francisco beat. You know, uh, you know, we, we, we had a beat. We had a symbol called the pussy symbol. <laughs> you know, like pussy symbol. You know, am I, am I allowed to say that? But you know, sure. when, we, when you're playing at, at two in the morning, sometimes you need that. You know, it's just like <laughs> a real slow song. It's kind of like, all right, that's why I need you to play. And eventually, of course, they, they knew what the language was. And I think an interesting thing was that we not only developed, I not only had my own sound with the slide trumpet, and Brigham has something on alto that no one has, but groove-wise, we also developed our own grooves, mm -hmm. which I think is really important that all of us f figure out like what, you know, because my grooves are, you know, growing up the way I did. It's, you're going to have P-Funk and Sly right in there, but being a big band guy, you know, there's all this big band music in there too, and then because I grew up with free music, there's also, and I call that rhythm. I call that, that's a form of rhythm. That's a free rhythm. You know, there's some rhythms that are 4-4, four, four, some rhythms that are 2-4, you have waltzes, and you, you know, and you have free rhythm, and it's a very flow, like the rhythm of a river. Mm -hmm. Like when you see a river go by, there, there's a rhythm to the river, but it's not, it's not four on the floor. <laughs> right, for sure. Yeah, good point. Well, let's talk about um, the uh, Millennial Territory Orchestra, which to me is... Uh, a nice, I don't know if I'd say it's an outgrowth of, of Sex Mob, but you, now you've added more instruments. It's orchestrationally more going on. But, but still, to me, it has a lot of that, that oh, yeah. cool groove element thing. Right. But maybe talk a little bit about starting that band and where you've gone with that. And well, that was an interest, interesting confluence of events. Like We haven't talked about Hal Wilner yet, but Hal was a producer who kind of took me under his wing and kind of saw that you know I, I was relating to the things that he was making on records. And again, I had these certain skills, really, again, coming from big band. You know, mm -hmm. it's a very, mm -hmm. like, a lot of guys, the thing is, is that I love rock music. And I think if you're gonna play rock music, you have to love it. If you're gonna play any music, you have to love it. I mean, right. that's what this whole thing's about. That's what you're trying to get to the people. And so, um, Hal was doing this movie for Robert Altman called Kansas City. And he had hired me, basically as a set of ears. He said, because he knew I knew the science of it, he said, I just want you to, I was being paid to listen to music hmm. for like three months. He said, every week, back in the cassette days, go to the place and be, hand me a bunch of cassettes. I want you to just listen to this. So basically, when he said, you know how sometimes producers will tell you something abstract and you're going to have to understand scientifically like, yeah, sure. what that is? Sure. I know what he meant because I'd be like, okay, this is, when he's talking about this thing in this kind of music, that means 
the horns are phrasing like this, or that means it's a unison, or that, you know, something that's intrinsic in this style of music. And I went down there, and the idea was that they were going to kind of improvise these songs, because Hal really is really into the moment. And we had an incredible band. I mean, it was, you know, Fathead Newman, <laughs> Josh Revan, James Carter, uh, Nicholas Payton, wow. you know, Christian McBride, Ron Carter, Victor Lewis, Cyrus Chestnut. I mean, it was just, uh, but guess what? They couldn't really improvise these songs because they didn't grow up playing these songs. Mm. So I was like, well, you can write arrangements, right? I'm like, yeah, I can't. All right, here's what we need for tomorrow. <laughs> and so suddenly it's like, <laughs> I'm just in the hot seat. It's like every night, it's like, okay, here it says in the script that this guy walks in, this guy walks in, this. we need an arrangement of this that sounds like that, as if, because it's supposed to sound as if natural, like people are jamming. Mm -hmm. You know, like so-and-so's walking in, they're playing um, whatever song it might be, one o'clock jump, and this guy walks in. So suddenly I'm like writing all these arrangements. And I was, and luckily, being a musician, and I'm sure you've noticed this too with conductors, certain conductors, their whole thing is power. And certain musicians don't react well to that. <laughs> so here I am with a room of guys who are all great, better musicians than me. So I just sit down and I tell them, look, man, we're all in this together. We got to make this work. I'm going to be like doing my best to write arrangements every night to make this work. I'm going to need you guys just to, you know, if there's something, if there's a wrong note, just fix it. Like mm -hmm. you guys, you guys know what, you know, you know how this, at least I may be, give you a framework. Mm -hmm. And everyone was so cool and so like gracious about it. You know, I said, look, I'm just going to be pumping these things out. There's not, I guarantee you every note's not going to be right. So just put the right note in. And if there's a better note, play the better note. Like, mm -hmm. what do I care? It's like, I, all I want to do is get this job done. And it ended up being great because there was a structure. So it wasn't people sitting around looking blind, like lost in their headlights, but everyone was allowed to, you know, express themselves. And, and, and um, so I learned a lot about this music. And when I was done with it, it, like I didn't want to stop listening to it. Like I, I had like gone down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and I don't know, I wasn't really a Basie guy. I was like really an Ellington guy. And I, okay. I, I spent about 20 years listening to Ellington every day of my life. Like every day, hmm. every day. And I started listening to Basie and then you're not just listening to Basie, you listen to Andy Kirk, Clouds of Joy, Benny Moten, and then also even some of the other Midwestern music from maybe Chicago. So I'm listening to... Um, Things like um, oh, the big uh, tiny parum and and it's in, it's this music before things got consolidated because it's 1937, 1936, that kind of stuff, and they're still using march forms, ragtime forms. They're still uh, doing those things they would do where there'd be like a, a song would be in minor, but then. Then it'd be the, the blues would be in major, and then we'd go back to minor. There were like a lot of things that, that kind of got lost along the way. But I was fascinated by all this structural stuff. So I'm still listening and trying to like figure out like, well, what is all this stuff? And then what happens is like Stex Mob's gotten really big, you know, like there's like lines around the block to hear us on, on our midnight gig at Now we're playing at Tonic and like models are coming it's like it's you get every once in a while you hit that thing in new york where people want to be there right we had a and we had a good club in the right neighborhood to play and bill frizzell hires my rhythm section 
Now, what are you going to say? I mean, <laughs> greatest guitar player in, right now, coolest guy, wants my rhythm. And Kenny was already playing with him, but he had he'd come to hear Sex Mob, he heard Tony, and it's like, okay, so now I lost my rhythm section, but I have a gig that people are coming to. So I say, man, why don't I try to put together a band kind of exploring these things I've been learning from this Midwestern music? Mm. And so I just call a bunch of people up and say, and I wanted to, like those bands didn't have, none of them had trombone sections. They're like Broadway shows. They had one trombone, mm -hmm. you know? All those <laughs> bands had one, and oftentimes they had two, a, a, a fiddle. It was usually like two trumpets, fiddle, trombone, and three reeds. Mm -hmm. So I said, let me put together a band kind of like that. And I just had one, so I had one trumpet, trombone, fiddle, uh, clarinet, tenor, and Barry, and I said, I want you guys all to bring sopranos, too, because they would often do a thing that they called the um, clarinet trio, where everyone would pick up the high, and the, for the trio section, when it would change keys, when it would go up a fourth, everyone would have a little soli. And I think the first gig, I had three songs, and we improvised the rest. And it was great, you know, we, and then, you know, I had started doing this, and Second gig was uh, the day of Lester Bowie's funeral. And that was really emotional. And uh, in honor of Lester, I had a cigar. I never drank much, but I said I had a little whiskey on stage, and I was just like feeling it, you know. And we started with St. Louis Blues, which was a great Lester Bowie version of. And this is how things work. It can work in New York. There's a guy in the audience, hands me his card. This is great. I run Pori Jazz Festival. I'm taking New York this summer. This is my second gig. We've never rehearsed, we just, we just met downstairs. I have three charts, maybe four by then. <laughs> now I have a guy say, I'm taking a poor jazz festival. He goes, don't worry, I'll get you. And so, and he takes us, you know, because they have a circuit. So we did, I guess it was North Sea, Pori, and I don't know what the third one, I can't even remember what the third one was, but it was the third one in the circuit, uh, Molden, Molden Jazz Festival. And so uh, here I am, like, and, you know, I'll say thank Lester Bowie for that. Like, you know, he gave me the spirit and that started touring with that band. Now, when I started with that band, I was doing, like, all old, older music. And I would have groove sections in it because, you know, and that was, had Ben Porowski and Ben Allison. So that groove is a little like Ben Porowski's from New York. Kenny mm -hmm. Wallison's from California. So Ben's got that real New York f groove going. Mm -hmm. So that band had, when we hit a groove... It had that feeling. And one day, by the way, we're neighbors. I'm at the mall. I'm walking through the mall. And in my head, I hear, um, um, I said, oh man, that's that signed, sealed, delivered, but played like a slow, like Kansas City song. So I go home and, and I write it out, you know, and I suddenly realize, oh, I see, I can take also this, you know, modern music and play it in that style. So then I started realizing, I did Ripple by the Grateful Dead, I started bringing in songs and kind of putting those into this kind of, not pure Kansas City style, but that idea of that like Midwestern blues, you know. And so then suddenly that band, suddenly the repertoire just blossomed in that band as well. Wow, fantastic. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah.
interesting path yeah. for both bands. But yeah. it's, it's very cool. Very yeah. cool. Maybe talk a little bit now about, you know, you, you are, are super well known as an arranger and, you know, you've already alluded to some of that, but maybe maybe talk a little bit more about some of the, the arranging stuff you've done. Um, you know, I know you've worked with Hal a bunch and you could expound on that if you like, but, but you know, you've, through your own bands and other projects for just tons of different artists, yeah. you've, done, you've done a lot of stuff as an arranger. Well, the thing about Hal is Hal's got his hands in a lot of worlds. I mean, he's worked at Saturday Night Live for longer than anybody except for Lorne Michaels. And so he knows, and he's a guy that people don't know who he is. He produced the first tribute record. Now we're all used to tribute records, but Hal kind of opened that genre up. He invented that, basically, and he made a very successful Disney record called Stay Awake. In maybe 84 that had Ringo, Natalie Merchant, Sun Ra, Ema Sumac, Dr. John, Gil Evans. I mean, just like that whole idea of like, and which I could really relate to this idea of like, oh yeah, I love all this music, mm -hmm. you know? And um, he started bringing me in to write for these pop people who needed like a slightly jazz, need horns. And, um, and what I realized was that you know, I like getting around people. I'm the kind of person I enjoy kind of talking to people and just getting to know who they are. And singers are very interesting because you really, the most important thing is to make a singer comfortable. Mm -hmm. And once a singer's comfortable, you can kind of give them a lot of stuff as long as they're comfortable first. So we would do these big shows. I guess the Leonard Cohen show was, was the one that really broke out. And I took all these Leonard Cohen songs and I didn't even know anything about Leonard. Like, Pat would always be like, hey, can you do this? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. And I'd, and I'd say, yeah. And I'd listen to like a couple songs. I'm like, well, that's not so hard. There's two chords and I'll figure it out. You know, but I didn't know how great Leonard Cohen was. I was just like, oh, it's a job. Mm. And so my whole thing is like, well, let's do this. Let's make this tune like a Pharoah Sanders tune. Let's make this tune like a tango. Let's put a Count Basie vibe on this. Let's put a Sly vibe on this. <laughs> and just be from, you know, the way I listen to music is, I'm not big on words, you know, but I can always, because I'm always so busy hearing like the bass parts and the horn parts and how everything works together. And so I just developed this way of arranging where I could hear a song and just say, let's put another feeling on it. And I had the right musicians who knew my language. So if I tell them, let's put that sly groove, they know what I'm talking about. If I say, I remember one time we were in London, I said, let's put a Naya Bingy groove on it. And all the people in London were like, you know what Naya Bingy is? I'm like, yeah, man, I know what Naya Bingy is. You know, I don't know if you know what that is, but that's like a, I don't. Okay, Naya Bingy is like a traditional Jamaican uh, rhythm they play up in the hills. So if you listen to a lot of reggae, like the like the real roots of reggae, it's like, and it's got this really deep African thing with a heavy like one on it, and. Um, Probably, I'm probably wrong. Probably people call it, that's not a Naya Bingy groove. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me. But that, that's what it feels like to me. The drummer always right. plays it right. If I got the right drummer, they know how to do it. And uh, it's, it's, it's hypnotic. So I started creating this thing where I could pull all these different things. So maybe it's, maybe the drum part comes from like the Jamaican Hills, but like, you know, the horn part might be something I heard on a, on a Count Basie record and you know the guitar part something i pulled from a p-funk record you know <laughs> and and that's kind of what i've done is like i create this way of, of arranging where i just it's like cooking using different spices and 
like I said, I spent so much time listening to music and kind of making little mental, like every time I hear something good, I just go, I'm gonna steal that one day. Like whatever it is, you know, I just go like, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And I always tell musicians, like, you know, when I start, even when I was like playing in like Haitian bands and cumbia bands, I would, be, I would try to figure out like what all the parts were. Like, what's a, what's a guitar player doing? What's a, what's a bass player doing, you know? And I think a lot of horn players don't necessarily think like that. And it's, I always tell people like, that's one of the things that's important to do is don't just know your own part, learn all the parts. And I never took an arranging class. I mean, I took one arranging class in college, mm -hmm. but basically I learned on the job and I learned, I learned by, by analyzing. You know, I just, I'm constantly listening to records. And it's very interesting, like the transcribing and what's on a record thing, because you know, what we hear is not necessarily what happened. You know, and, that's for sure. You know, yeah, as, yeah. as we know from how the mixes of many recording dates we've been on. <laughs> but, but your own ears are, are kind of like, that's your style. Like you, what your ears tell you is happening is kind of your style of music. Like what your ears decide to pull out of an, an arrangement. And, um, you know, oftentimes I think I'm, I might be just hearing overtones that are ringing around, but my ears are, are assigning it to something and then. That's my style. But you know, I've, uh, I've been doing it a long time. And like I said, one of the reasons, yet another reason I was late this morning was that I was trying to finish an arrangement and I love, it's like my hobby as well as my job. And I just wanted to finish it because then I can hear it back. And I was like, oh, it, yeah, I can get this, this last part in and then I can, and then I can listen to it. Cause then I love, I love playing and going, oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> so I woke up, had a cup of coffee. I'm like, ah, really good to Sibelius. Yeah. And, I, th and I, I think one of the things is that I love horns. And know what I love? I love thirds. I think mm. a lot of people lost the beauty of thirds. Mm. Thirds are so beautiful. The way they ring, I just love the sound of like horns ringing out a triad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? That's a great point. Well, I think too, I think you kind of like, you're, you have an insatiable appetite for music, you know, and I think the fact that you absorb all these different, and you, you're, you're really listening to it and really listening carefully to every, all the types of music you like, and then you're able to assimilate that into your arranging, it's really a, it's a good lesson for all of us, you know, it's like be open to everything. You know? Right. And there's something you can pull, like you just said, you're going to pull something from everything, you know, and you don't right. have to, you don't have to say today what that is, you know, right. it's just put it away and you know right and, and hold it and I and I was like don't don't waste an opportunity if you hear something you like put it away because you're going to use it sometime mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will say because I know you, you play with him like when I started working with Levon I got really into Ray Charles like Levon said to me listen to Ray Charles band he goes that's what I like the horns to sound like and I learned so much from learned not the big band but I mean the big band was great but those little Ray Charles arrangements with the two trumpets and the three saxophones, mm -hmm. man, there's a lot to be learned from those. Yeah. Those indeed. are, every one of those is a gem. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's talk, uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about for you going forward as an artist and as an arranger. Uh, I really enjoyed, I was checking out some of the videos for the, the Butler Burns scene and the Hot Nine. Man, it's really great <laughs> the band music. Is, that band is oh, so good. Band is, I really love it. Um, Maybe talk a little bit about that and where, where things are going for you in terms of uh, your projects and your writing and, and your playing. Well, that, that's been a great project because that's been like my first project that's really, because it's based around Henry, who's, you know, one of the greatest. If you don't know who Henry Butler is, check him out. He's really an American treasure. This guy 
is the whole history of New Orleans music. We have a, a share a lot of similarities in that we both love the historical aspect of things. You know, going all the way back to like pre-jazz, loving the meters and the funk, loving to play imp open improvisation. And I based a band around his playing. Actually, what happened was he did a gig with Millennial Territory Orchestra. And he said, um, after we did the gig, he said, man, that's really great. Um, you want to arrange some of my music. It's an interesting story. And I said, okay, let's get together. We get together and we play it, we get a little run at Jazz Standard, and you can tell from the first set, it's incredible. It's like, wow, this really works. And we had a meeting later, and he said, this is really great, but you know, I think we need to do this with the New Orleans Rim section. I couldn't figure out what he meant, because it sounded so good. Mm -hmm. And then when we did it with the New Orleans Rim section, I knew what he meant, because he was hearing something that wasn't there yet, that I hadn't even thought of, which is, because I've been so like kind of New York-centric, in a sense, egocentric to the rhythms that I feel naturally. And he said, no, if we put this stuff over New Orleans rhythms, it's going to be a whole nother level. And what that did was, because, like, if you go to one of my regular shows, you're going to hear, you'll hear some sly rhythm, funk rhythms, some reggae rhythms, like I said, free rhythms, maybe some very heavy rock rhythms. Like one of the things that I like to do is when you play rock, I want it to feel like, you know, John Bonham or like the Sex Pistols, <laughs> like actually, like a little scary. Like rock doesn't mean, rock doesn't mean straight eighth notes. Rock should have some, like a little bit of fear, like, you know, guess what? Like someone might get hurt, you know? <laughs> and, and I like that, you know? And, but that scares a lot of jazz people because they're not really used to that. Right. Like right. jazz people are like, wow, that's not really, some of them. Yeah. But with this music, because we're keeping everything in a New Orleans rhythm, it's allowed it to kind of, be a little more in, in the wheelhouse of the kind of more mainstream jazz thing. So we can do things like the Nice Jazz Festival and the Hollywood Bowl and uh, Kennedy Center and Jazz at Lincoln Center, which is great to be able to play these venues because, you know, they're great venues and they pay well and sure. we're trying to make a living here, yeah. right? You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, we got a job to do, right? Oh, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and... And it's Tom, I've always loved New Orleans music, but to get to play New Orleans music with New Orleans guys, I'll never forget we made the record and we played uh, Buddy Bold's Blues and we get to the, to the out chorus, you know, the kind of ride out chorus, and you're doing the thing where the trumpet's playing the melody on top and Herlin Riley's, like he hears my melody and he does that drum thing a great drummer does where after the end of your phrase, he makes the fill so you don't have to keep playing. You know, he puts that fill in so... He stretches out to here, and then at the end of the film, you come in again. That's a trunk. And I said to Herlin, I said, I've been waiting my whole life for that. Because you can't do that unless the drummer is right. playing that fill for you to really play that music properly. And, 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 and again, because like I said, I, I love writing. We're, I'm constantly writing for that band. We just played at Central Park. We debuted a, a new arrangement for that. I'm working on a new arrangement of... Um, Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue for Newport, you know, because Henry thought it'd be kind of cool to re, like, kind of do our own take on that. We have a whole book of uh, New Orleans R&B music as well wow. we've done. Yeah, because like I said, I, it's kind of, I like to write. I yeah. really like to write. Um, I have a new Sex Mob record out and a CD, and this is really interesting. I was trying to figure out, like, all these CDs, like, what, as you know, what does it mean to put out a CD now? I mean, so few people buy CDs, people just download for free. 
I read David Byrne. Have you read David Byrne's book, How Music Works? I haven't, no. Interesting book. Read oh, it. I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah. Great. And what I really liked was talking about the music business. And I said, well, what do I want to do for my next Sex Mob record? Because I really want to make a record. And, uh, you know, like the last record, you know, it's like, to be honest, I don't even think I broke, I paid for it myself, and I didn't think I broke even yet. Mm -hmm. And it's a good record that people bought and listened to. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make this really I'm going to do it at Tony's house, like not even, no engineers, just the four of us in Tony's house. I'm going to put it in just like a, a little, like, recycled cardboard with no fancy art, no graphics, just it looks like, like, you know, like it's artisanal. Right. And, the, I, and I tell people, and I sell it off the stage for $10, and I tell people, please, don't put it on YouTube, and please don't even like write about it on Facebook or Google it or, 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 or blog about it for now. Eventually, I'll have a digital release. But the idea of it being like artisanal, like it's between me and you. Yeah. And I tell people, like, if there's a song you like, your friends come to your house, play them the song you like. That's how to share it. And people are really into that idea of, hey, this music is just, I made this music because I want to make it. And if you like my music, Ten bucks, you can have it, mm -hmm. and but all I'm asking is just keep it between us for now, and eventually I'll have a digital release. I have a, a you know, I keep moving ahead. I have a new project with three guitars called Blue Campfire with um, Larry Campbell, David Tronzo, and Cardness, and just trumpet and guitars. And I, I really want to make a beautiful record. Like, just feel I'm a point in my life where I just want something beautiful. And it, we just did one concert. I think we're going to do it on Artist Share. Okay, go to Artist Share and find out about this. <laughs> and uh, um, it's kind of, it's my music, but it's also, we're playing some, some Grateful Dead tunes, band, Monk, Ellington. Um, and I always loved, you know, from being, or especially from being around Levon, but I've always loved the way, like, you know when you're around guitar players and they're just, they're just sitting in a circle and they're, they're looking each other in the eye and, like, talking <laughs> while they're playing? You're right. Well, we don't get to do that as brass players. No. You can't be like, hey, man, like, check this out. It's like, <laughs> but so I just said, let me get that. And, and Larry, who if you don't know who he is, is like the premier go-to guy, you know. That people, you know for, he was with Dylan for years, and everyone calls him because he can just play anything on the guitar. He's a, well, not just guitar, fiddle and pedal steel and banjo right. and, and a producer. And he's not really used to Playing, he improvises, but he's not used to like jazz musicians like Cardinus, who, you know, plays with, you know, was playing with Paul Motion and playing with Charlie Hayden and all that stuff. It's one of my favorite yeah. guitarists. What a Amazing. tone, huh? Oh, and so, and Tronzo, so who's just came and described what he does on slide guitar, and everyone's just reacting and listening, and it's just about melody, beautiful melody. I just wanted it sound like an orchestra, you know, and so that's my next record. And then I just started a horn band because I got a gig. I called me up or emailed me on my, uh, no, Facebook me actually on my birthday saying, would you put together a, a, a brass band to play on a, a boat in Austria to start my festival? I was like, yeah, why not, man? <laughs> so I got a new book of music for two trumpets, two trombones, two altos, uh, drums, and tuba. And that's really cool because it's like, you know, I, I usually don't write in pairs. I, you know, uh, with MTO, it's, it's either written in two sets of three, or I like to write a lot of individual things where, or do a lot of mixing where, you know, you might have 
the baritone sax and the violin on one phrase and the next thing's clarinet and trumpet. You know, I've always been kind of fascinated by like, well, what happens if I put these two together, these three? <laughs> but brass bands, the way you write it is like trumpets are together, bones are together, altos are together. So it's giving me like a whole another kind of palette to explore. And people love brass bands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's an incredible sound. Well, as always, Stephen, you're, you're inspiring to be around because you're, you're so energized and it's just like, I'm like looking at myself going, come on, do something. <laughs> it's, good. it's great. You know, as, as we kind of wind down, I just wanted to ask you a question that uh, you can take it any direction you want to go with it. But um, I, I'm going to read it so I say it exactly as I as intended to be. If you knew what you know now, and we're suddenly 25 years old again, how would you approach this business going forward in, in uh, 2016? As a 25-year-old in 2016? Yes. Uh, I would have learned to play piano a little better. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I think I would have done everything the same. I kind of wish, because I can't play piano at all. Yeah. Just kind of a drag. Yeah. I mean, I just... You know, trumpet was always really hard for me, so I spent a lot of time just practicing long tones. I still spent a lot of time practicing long tones. I mean, that's, you know, I wake up and I just play long tones. And I kind of wish I had, like, learned piano technique. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and other than that, you know, I mean, I, I love music. I mean, obviously it's, like, not, you know, I've been luckier than most. You know, I raised a family, I have a house and this stuff. It's obviously, like, not, you know, sometimes you think, I have a line I like to use. It's not bad. It's okay not to have a job as long as you're working. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah, I like that. You know, yeah. But when yeah. you know those times when you're not working and you go like, hey, man, wait, I don't get it. It's like <laughs> I, I, I do this all my life and, and it can, can get a little frightening, yeah. which you know, right? We all know this. It, it is, you know, you have to really love this and go like, all, and, you know, I went all in. And I think I'd go all in again, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. maybe with a little piano technique. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome, and it's great advice. I think that's no matter what it is, no matter what the technology is, uh, you got to be all in. Yeah, and that's that's uh, a great piece of advice. Yeah. Stephen, I, I can't thank you enough. It's been uh, great to spend some time with you. I hope you uh, all enjoyed this as much as I did. Make sure to check this gentleman out: Sex Mob, MTO. Butler Bernstein and the Hot Nine. Tons of stuff coming up. Yeah, and, go to, and if you like, think this is good, um, go over to Artist Share and hopefully you can figure out about this Blue Campfire record. And uh, Long Tones, every day. <laughs> Steven, thanks so much. Thank what a pleasure. Know. All right, no, thank all you. All right, we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.